Paratruth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. If you like listening to beautiful voices like ours instead of reading words, then head on over to Audible where you can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash paratruth where you can choose from over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Christian and non-Christian paranormal investigators. They have two different views. And it seems as if neither of them can ever agree on anything. So what happens when an ancient view of the paranormal crosses paths with the Christian view? Welcome to a brand new episode of Paratruth Radio. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. And while you're listening to the show tonight, check out our website, paratruthradio.com, where you can learn more about us and what we do. Also, feel free to look into our Patreon account at paratruthradio.com and help us to continue bringing the world fresh, entertaining media each and every week. By contributing, you'll become an executive producer of an upcoming episode of Paratruth Radio and officially become part of the Paratruth family, which will include special monthly behind-the-scenes access to our production. Quick note on that, folks. For those of you who have went ahead and contributed to the Patreon account, I know you've been waiting for a little while for our behind-the-scenes stuff. That will be coming to you at the end of this week, so be patient. It's on its way. Absolutely. And I think you guys will be really interested in this stuff just because we can get a little quacky in the behind the scenes stuff because we're goofballs. I mean, if you can't tell by our show already, we're goofballs. (laughs) So uh, this week we've got a pretty interesting topic. We've got the smells of the paranormal. Now Parachute presents The Paranormal Stinks with special guest Joshua Cutchin. All right, folks. So many paranormal newbies enter their first paranormal investigation relying on just two senses, sight and sound. However, we have another sense that is readily available to us if we choose to use it. That sense is smell. Joshua Cutchin is a new and upcoming author His first book was A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch. Today, he joins us to discuss his latest penmanship, The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural scents, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas. Josh, welcome back to Paratruth Radio. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing really well. It's a pleasure to be here. To start off with, I think I'll ask the question that your first chapter asks and that's why smells well you know a, a lot of uh what i've been trying to do ever since i got uh started in sort of the paranormal <laughs> writing realm is to really look at things that uh that no everybody else has sort of overlooked 
I think that there could possibly be um, some really important details in there that uh, we have overlooked. Um, and perhaps within those details, if we can take something tiny and sort of uh, mundane, perhaps we might actually gain some greater insight than trying to go full bore, trying to solve, you know, these big questions like, are there UFOs, you know, <laughs> do ghosts exist, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I'd noticed uh, throughout my uh, my life, just being a fan of Fortiana, that there was a strong consistency in the way uh, a lot of these phenomena smell, um, and a lot of sort of uh, a lot of sort of crossover um, in between these different uh, these different fields that people sort of want to put into their own little their own little discrete categories. Like, well, we've got the ghost over here, and we've got the uh, Sasquatch over here, and the UFOs over here. I noticed a lot of consistencies there, and I thought that perhaps um, it might be a thread worth pulling on, so to speak. Okay. Hmm. Well, now, when it comes to paranormal investigations, we see uh, many people, unfortunately, who are using things such as the ghost box as evidence. When it comes to smells, we know we've, you know, I don't know if you ever have, Josh, but Justin and I have come across smells in the past during uh, investigations, whether it be perfume or rotten egg type smell or anything like that. But do you think, based on your own research, that a scent can be used in maybe confirming a paranormal haunting, or is it something that's just used to kind of help guide your investigation? Um, I think so it's sort of a problem because we don't have anything to record smell, at least in any sort of really consistent way. And smell is something of a subjective sense anyway. I mean, some people can are more sensitive to certain odors and some people are not. However, it does imply, I mean, for example, if you think you see an apparition and there is a smell associated with it, mm. that sort of acts as a secondary type of confirmation that can really help reinforce uh, the idea that you actually did see something simply because we don't usually think of our, our noses playing tricks on us. It does happen from time to time, but, um, the, the, the idea that your eyes and your nose would, would play a trick on you at the same time or your ears and your nose at the same time. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one extra level of, of confirmation that you can, that you can certainly go through. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I noticed that is a common scent throughout the book is that of sulfur and that's, between uh, spirit, UFO, and Sasquatch encounters, and I'm sure a couple others, through your research, did you find that they coincided with multiple sightings at all, or was it specific to each individual type of sighting? So by multiple sightings, you mean um, just multiple sightings of the same, multiple witnesses during the same event? or, or uh, uh, No, like somebody who witnessed a Bigfoot and then eventually witnessed a UFO or a spirit in a Bigfoot or something like that. You know, that's interesting. I don't think I ever really, I don't think I ran into anyone who, um, who was a multi-tier witness in terms of witnessing different types of phenomena and noticing that there's, that there's a similar scent described. That would be actually an interesting little uh, avenue to, to research. Um, yeah. You know, having said that, there are instances where uh, these phenomena have been seen together, vaguely speaking, um, and where people have described smelling a sort of uh, sulfurous odor. Um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of there's this famous um, case by Stan Gordon in Pennsylvania where you ba- basically in the course of one evening – Witnesses experienced a UFO, Bigfoot phenomena, and a possession, <laughs> and there was a smell of uh, rotten eggs associated with that—the sort of sulfur smell that we that we associate with it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And of course, there's a lot of stuff I, can, I could go into in terms of what people are really smelling when they smell sulfur because self, sulfur technically isn't, doesn't have an odor. It's sulfur compounds that have an odor. So that's sort of what I, what I get into in the book a little bit. Um, in case anybody's wondering. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, there have been instances, uh, here and there in the book, um, where people would, would experience what looks kind of like ghost phenomena, but is also associated with sort of ufological, um, Phenomena. I'm thinking specifically of something like uh, Our Lady of Fatima, which, incidentally enough, uh, just had its 100th anniversary, uh, I believe, three oh, days wow. ago. Cool. Now, when it comes to the software uh, phenomena, what? I mean, where did it originate? Like, where did this idea that software and demons were associated in some way? Oh, who boy. <laughs> um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's really interesting. A sulfur as as a compound has. Um, or as an element rather, has a lot of, of has quite a varied and storied history. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times it was used specifically for uh, cleansing purposes. Um, it's the same reason that if you get, for example, like a face wash, sometimes it'll have sulfides in it, or you know, the same reason that if you get uh, certain antibiotics are you know have sulfur in them as well. Um, it was used as a fumigant. It was used as a sort of purifying, um, sort of a purifying element in in antiquity, as far back as uh, ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is if you look at the origins of uh, entities from hell like demons or like Satan smelling of brimstone, you'll find that it really has its roots in this sort of purification usage. Um, specifically, if you look at the mentions of sulfur in otherwise known as brimstone in the, uh, in the Christian Bible, you'll notice that uh, a lot of times – uh, it's used in a positive capacity. For example, God's breath is compared to cleansing sulfur. Um, you'll also notice that um, when Satan is supposedly cast into the lake of uh, fire and brimstone, it isn't because that's something that Satan would love. It's because it's something that would actually end up torturing him. It, In that sense, sulfur was sort of used as a stand-in as a symbol of God's attempt to purify Satan's evil with sulfur, um, which is really interesting because it sort of uh, turns – what a lot of people think on its on its head, um, mm-hmm. but you can you can find this this link between the divine between positive, um, you know between positive spiritual forces and sulfur as far back as ancient Greece the uh, origins of uh, the word sulfur in Greece thion and uh, the deities thay is that sort of that phi theological sort of same same root word. Um, so it's 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 interesting. It's sort of over the time it got co-opted into being something that you associated with demonic uh, activity. Um, it's really interesting if you look at it from like purely a biological standpoint. Human beings are um, extremely sensitive uh, to sulfur compounds, partially because it's um, partially because it's it, it can be toxic in certain certain. Uh, Circumstances. One of my favorite statistics to talk about is the fact that hydrogen sulfide, which is what we normally smell when we say we're smelling sulfur, um, it's that rotten egg odor, mm-hmm. um, actually has an odor threshold in, term, in terms of how people can detect it of 0.47 parts per billion. And to put that into sort of, uh, to put that into perspective, if you had an ink dropper and dropped a drop of ink into the back of a semi-truck full of water, that would be twice that concentration. So we really are hardwired to notice this. And I think it's somewhat non-coincidental that uh, that you'll find these sort of unexplained phenomena smelling that way. Mm-hmm. Not entirely sure what that means, but I think that there's something important there. Right, and it's it's odd that it, it goes 
past that barrier, barrier of more than just one type of sighting. It's just odd to me. Um, but one thing that uh, I've always associated with smell because it's actually a common one is with the Bigfoot and that musky animal smell. Um, through doing the the book, what type of uh, stories did you come across where was it a lot that had the smell only certain times? Oh, well, you know, Bigfoot is, it's sort of like a, uh, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of a, a dream subject when you talk about smell because the types of smells that are covered with Bigfoot just run the gamut. Um, you know, even though it's, even though the book is called The Brimstone Deceit, I go into all sorts of different paranormal smells. So with Bigfoot, you've got, you know, rotten, rotten animal flesh, skunk smell, urine smell, ammonia smell, um, also, you know, this, the sulfur smell as well. Um, but you find out like smells of dirt, smells of, um, of decay, just it, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and some of the things that you'd find are just these hilarious combinations that are sort of mashed up. Um, I'm thinking of one that was someone talking about, uh, the Bigfoot that they ran into smelled like roadkill and a dirty diaper. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 uh, you know, I, there's another one that was from, uh, from Alaska in 1998. This guy saw something digging in the dirt in a, in a, in a ditch by the road. He was riding on his bike. Um, and he, uh, said that he got this lung full of this awful gagging smell that was a combination of rotten meat, rotten meat, urine, and damp earth. It's, just, it's like this ridiculous Yeesh. grab bag. Yeah. Um, my, my favorite Sasquatch description that I found, it's, it's like the most evocative and it's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard, is there was a guy, and I believe it was 1990, in Idaho, who was cutting wood, and he noticed this awful smell, and he looks up and he sees you know, this Sasquatch shuffling away from him. And when he was asked um, by investigators in the follow-up what it reminded him of, he said, well, you know, at one point I worked on a sheep farm as a kid, and whenever one of the sheep would give stillbirth to a lamb, that's sort of what it smelled like. Oh, oh. <laughs> which is like the most, yeah, it's the most. This that's the most visceral example that I can think of because it was just so awful. But you also do see, you know, all this being said, you also do see, you know, these sort of very animalistic smells, like wet dog. You see skunk, um, and uh, you also see this, you know, this persistent thing of of brimstone of rotten eggs. Um, there was one guy. Um, that I uh, looked into who, and I believe it was British Columbia, um, till his, till his dying day referred to Sasquatch as the fart monster because it's ended up smelling like a fart. Um, so you do see this odd sulfur connection, which really doesn't have a biological precedent in the animal kingdom, which I think mm-hmm. is sort of, people will see, you know, the name of this book, the brimstone deceit and assume that it goes down some sort of reductive, um, some sort of reductive, you know, everything's a demon path. Mm. I'm, I'm open to that interpretation, but that's definitely not the side that the book takes. I tried to try to uh, take it as straight down the middle as I could. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand how people associate <laughs> to the, the word association to the smell. And I, it just, it boggles me because I guess I've never come across that horde of a smell, so I, I don't know how I would associate it. But. That's, that's the impression that I get is that if you smell if you smell Sasquatch in the woods, then you will know <laughs> because it's so much like uh, unlike anything else. Um, but you know, it's interesting if you look at this is an axe that I've been grinding for some time now. Um, if you look at sort of the what I what are called the Type B Bigfoot 
reports, mm-hmm. which are the ones in, for example, uh, in uh, the BFRO, they categorize them as ones where you have everything but an actual visual sighting. Mm-hmm. You get things like, I mean, obviously footprints, but you get things like rocks being thrown, strange smells, strange voices. And it occurred to me that, I didn't necessarily cover this in the book, but it occurred to me that, um, that, this is kind of almost exactly like poltergeist phenomena. Mm-hmm. And yet because people are in the woods, they associate it with Bigfoot. And you'll even find some stories of people um, having rocks tossed at them and the rocks being warm to the touch, which, again, is, an, is another, you know, poltergeist hallmark. So mm-hmm. I think sometimes we if, unless we see a Bigfoot, we should sort of open up our eye, open up our minds to the fact that perhaps there's some sort of other uh, there's something else on sort of this continuum of phenomena that might be happening. Mm hmm. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of speculation out there uh, regarding the sense of spirits uh, or the smells of spirits. Um, one in particular I've come across in your book is actually you, you talk about the RMS Queen Mary uh, having this scent of cigar smoke uh, coming from out of nowhere. Um, and I've, I've actually been on that on that boat before. And there was one time where we did come across something that kind of smelled like cigar. Interesting. But, yeah. But. The question is, and I don't know if you came across this or not, but do you think this is something that spirits themselves are capable of actually manifesting, or is it something that's kind of in a person's mind and they kind of trigger the scent themselves? Like they think they smell it, but the scent isn't really there. Well, and you know, I would sort of put a, a third dimension on that too. Okay. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, it's entirely possible for environments to soak up smells, especially something that permeates things as much as uh, as cigar smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, certain environmental factors can actually end up releasing that smell um, into the uh, into the environment, changes in humidity or temperature or whatnot. But I certainly think that there's a danger of people being primed. And the mm-hmm. fact that, I mean, simply by merit of the fact that the two most common spirit smells that you run into are perfume and, you know, cigar, cigarettes, tobacco products. Mm-hmm. Um, simply by merit of that, I think a lot of people are primed to be on the lookout for those sort of things. And I, I can totally see how you can, um, interpret things just with a little bit of a suggestion. I mean, there's this phenomena that a lot of olfactory scientists have talked about called the tip of the nose phenomena, which is a play on the tip of the tongue phenomena in terms of when you try to remember a word and you can't quite nail it down. Um, similar thing happens with smell. A lot of times smells are recognized before we can put a name to them. So it's entirely possible that a smell of that of that caliber might be reinterpreted interpreted as cigar smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of what, I mean, it's interesting to me that I find it odd that a spirit, if we do accept the ghosts as dead people hypothesis, I find it odd that a spirit would be even be able to sort of manifest an odor. I don't really know what that says about the, the, uh, the standing of, of smell in terms of the hierarchy of the human senses, but it implies to me that there's something a little bit more, um, a little bit more metaphysical going on in terms of the way that we interact with our environment through smell. And, you know, if you look at, if you look at some of the sciences out there, nobody really knows exactly how we smell. Um, there are even some people who have posited certain quantum models for the way that we smell. And I'm not necessarily one to, one to, uh, (laughs) talk to you about that because I'm not a quantum physicist, but, uh, at the same time, it is interesting to me that something as fundamental as smell still has a giant question mark over it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, any of our five senses that they, they don't, I mean, they can say how they think it's happening, 
But is that really how it's happening? Nobody really knows. Oh yeah, it's it's well, it's like you know that that sort of uh, middle school thing, which you know, <laughs> depending on your crowd, it's either your your uh, middle school friends or your stoner friends come up to you and go, "How do I know that? <laughs> how do I know that when I'm seeing red, it's the same red that you see?" <laughs> for the longest time, I thought for the longest time I thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard of until I really started thinking about it. And yeah, I mean, it's experience itself is is suggestive. I mean, right. each, each one of us, I. I would I would posit that if I could uh could jump out of Skype and leap straight into your mind, I would see things a lot different than the way that I see them. Um just, you know, and there's little things that would really surprise me in terms of the way that I'm interpret- interpreting and processing all this stimuli around me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So one of the other smells, I guess you could say, uh, that was associated in the book is the smell of ozone with UFOs. Now, when people were smelling ozone, was there a certain thing going on? Had this UFO landed? Had it been swirling around? Where did the ozone smell come into play with UFOs? Well, it's a little bit all over the place, and it's a little bit of a problematic uh, issue, too, because early on, there was this conflation between ozone and sulfur. People used to think that, again, the idea of, um, I had mentioned how the Greeks associated sulfur with the gods. Well, they associated sulfur with the gods because they thought that when lightning struck, that smell was sulfur. Okay. In reality, we all know that that smell is ozone. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a little bit of, a little bit of a, of a problematic task in front of people who want to Look at, you know, UFO sightings because are people really saying ozone when they mean sulfur and vice versa? Right. Um, but in those, in, in the UFO cases, I mean, I still maintain that sulfur is the most commonly, sulfur compounds to be more specific are the most commonly noted UFO odors. Um, but ozone, I gotta tell you, is a, is a close second. Um, and really in terms of what these alleged craft, if they are craft, I'm, I'm skeptical of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but <laughs> <laughs> these, these alleged craft, um, whatever they, um, whatever they are, it sort of runs the, runs the, uh, entire spectrum of, of activity in terms of ozone. There's not really a, um, not really a set thing in terms of them being landed or them taking off. I do think it's interesting that, um, ozone, the creation of ozone is photoelectric. So if there's, um, if there is, uh, enough, uh, basically if, if light can generate ozone, in terms of uh, resonating on the ultraviolet, ultraviolet spectrum, mm-hmm. especially in the case of blue or purple light, I mean that the reason that the reason that we associate ozone that smell with electrical discharges is because that blue electrical discharge is actually igniting and splitting um, the mole- the oxygen molecules, and they rebind from O2 into O3. Oh, okay. um, so because of that, I sort of took a look at, you know, are there examples of craft with blue or purple lights being seen that also are accompanied by a smell of ozone? And that's actually pretty, a pretty uh, significant number of cases I found that was, that was indeed what was happening. So <laughs> if there is sort of a, a, a link between ozone and, and, you know, something that the craft is doing, it seems like that would be a pretty uh, rewarding uh, part way to look. Okay. Now, when it comes down to it, now, let's say we're in an investigation, right, and we, we smell something. Obviously, if we see something at the corner of our eye or we get a, a sound on the radio, we're probably going to go out of our way to try to debunk it, right? So 
is there a proper way to go about actually debunking a scent if indeed you don't really know where that scent came from to begin with? <laughs> oh boy. That's, <laughs> quite a, that's quite a question. Um, you know, I mean, on, on sort of a, a very basic level, the first thing mm-hmm. would be to confirm that other people smell it. Um, you know, th- there are, because we don't exactly understand how our brains interpret smell, there are certain cases where um, people misinterpret or basically their brains fabricate smells whole cloth. Mm-hmm. Uh, phantosmia is the smell of uh, smells that aren't there. A lot of ghost hunters have said that phantosmia means the smell of ghosts. That's not true. Like if more than one person smells it, it's not neurological phantosmia. Phantosmia is you have a brain disorder that actually grinds that smell. Um, there's also uh, some others I can't remember, but one of them is cacosmia, which is the interpretation of pleasant smells as unpleasant smells. So they're definitely, I mean, you definitely want to have corroboration um, from mm-hmm. someone else involved. Um, but because it's, it's difficult to sort of measure how strong an odor is. Um, what you could do is you could measure the um, amount of uh, of nerve stimulation in the nose. Um, mm-hmm. I talk later in the book about uh, the trigeminal nerve, um, which is actually if anyone has ever taken a big whiff of vinegar and they sort of they have this involuntary reaction in their face, that's your trigeminal nerve being stimulated. And most odors. Um, do stimulate the trigeminal nerve in some form or fashion. So that might be a possible way to sort of, uh, to sort of verify that. But for the most part, I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's still quite a subjective field. Okay. So one thought that has occurred to me going through the book and, and thinking about it a lot, uh, each one of the, the specific sightings that you had put in there have been associated with what a lot of people in the paranormal community are calling interdimensional now. Do you think that if these things are interdimensional, do you think these smells are from them crossing that interdimensional barrier from their plane to ours and we're just smelling that odor? You know, that was something that John Keel was quite uh, quite a fan of. He actually posited that the smell of... Um, Hydrogen sulfide, this sort of sulfur smell, might possibly be generated from that. Um, in certain cases, I don't think that if there is an interdimensional component to it, um, I I certainly think that some of these odors might be the case. I mean, for example, ozone would be a great contender for that. The, you know, the release of energy would mean that you know there was some sort of smell. Um, and you know, you see you see ozone in a handful of uh, ghost cases, and you know, so it's not just simply limited to stuff like UFOs. Um, but when you have the odor of, for example, um, for example, of, of something like hydrogen sulfide or sulfur dioxide, two of the most common sulfur compounds, the amount of um, energy that would have to be required to sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, ignite um, the sul- the ambient sulfur in the air is is would be uh, quite uh, quite astounding. I mean, we're talking about sort of like large hadron collider levels of oh, okay. uh, of of energy. So, I mean, it's it's possible. I mean, especially if you're if you are an ETHer, um, you know, it's possible that uh, certain advanced um, certain advanced 
civilizations might have that much energy at their disposal. Um, but to, to really generate sulfur smell from, from the pure air without some sort of, at least in terms of the way that we would understand or that we would posit interdimensional travel doesn't really seem to, it, like it makes a lot of sense to me. Then again, I mean, who knows what you use to travel interdimensionally? I mean, for all I know, right. um, you know, for all I know, you crack open a rotten egg and and uh, light it on fire or something, and that's interdimensional travel. No, but, but you know, but to the point, of trying to describe something that we don't really have any sort of idea of how that me- how that would you know how that mechanism would work, sort of right. a little bit of a dead end, I think. Well, at least if you were cracking open a rotten egg, that would explain the smell. <laughs> it would, it would, you know. And you know, and we, I mean, it's not. Hydrogen sulfide, for example, again, this really common rotten egg odor. I mean, it's, it's in all of us. I mean, it's the, it's the primary, uh, it's the primary comp- odoriferous component in flatus. You know, people talk about methane being what you fart, but, um, methane is actually odorless. It's actually the hydrogen sulfide along with some other compounds, um, in particular, indole and scatol are in there as well, um, that actually generate this sort of stinky smell. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's not like, it's not impossible that certain Flesh and blood entities couldn't just, you know, produce this on their own. The question is about the consistency. I mean, if, if, if we have this much, this many examples of people smelling this odor, it implies that every single, uh, unknown creature has the worst case of gas on the planet. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> or to explain it, if when you're doing an investigation, walk up to somebody and be like, Hey, did you fart? Did you fart? <laughs> Exactly. There's, there's a great, um, there's a great anecdote that was, that was sent my way, um, in the course of writing this of, uh, of, uh, I believe it was, I believe, I think it was Dana Newkirk from Weekend Weird, um, uh, who was actually on a ghost hunter, uh, ghost hunting expedition in, off, in, um, in Mac, on Mackinac Island. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she smelled this awful body odor. Uh, that was sort of associated with an entity on that particular location. And her, uh, her investigation partner noticed, noticed, mentioned that they'd noticed it as well. And then followed up with the fact of, well, you know, I, I actually don't have a sense of smell, but I was able to smell this. Oh, <laughs> it's wow. just like, again, sort of what we were talking about earlier, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. Somehow smell up functions on a different level than what we, the way that we think it does. Right. Yeah. Hmm. It's weird. Well, now, between 2015 and 2016, you have two books out. So, like the question, the final question I have here is, what's next on your agenda? Oh well, I'm gonna. I mean, I've already sullied my name by doing this. I guess <laughs> I'm gonna keep on <laughs> keep on doing it. No. Actually, in just a few days, there is a collection of essays that's coming out um, entitled "UFOs: Reframing the Debate." It's edited by Robbie Graham, um, and I was quite flattered to be asked to contribute to that. Um, it's a, a bunch of people who uh, I really admire who are also a part of the project. Uh, Greg Bishop, Red Pill Junkie, Chris Rutkowski, Mike Cleland. Um, I know this, uh, there are probably some other people that I'm forgetting too that I should remember. <laughs> um, but it's about, uh, I believe it's about 10 to 12 people who are involved in this. So that'll be coming out May night, uh, May 29th rather. Um, or maybe a couple of days before then. And then right now I'm currently working on book number three. Um, I should be starting writing it in earnest uh, by the end of the month. I've done all my research. I'm just going back through my outline and getting my thoughts in order. Um, and that's going to be on uh, paranormal child abduction from the fairy uh, folklore era all the way through uh, modern ufology. And really what it's going to be is, is, well, you know, it's, 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 it's a little bit more covered than the other areas that I've been through, but you know, these, these first two books were more of, you know, uh, 
here's a survey and here's mm-hmm. an analysis. Here's a survey and here's an analysis. So this, this is going to give me a little bit of a chance to write something that's a little bit more chronologically uh, oriented and it's basically it's, it's, I'm hoping that it will um, support my primary overall thesis, which is that if you take, um, you, if you take something out of ufology and take something that corresponds out of fairy folklore and you really look at them with a fine tooth comb, it will yield nearly infinite similarities. I mean, we know that there are all these broad brush strokes between fairy folklore and, uh, and you, and you, you know, modern UFO lore right. are, are similar, but I contend that you could take one thing and just break it apart and keep on breaking it apart and you'll see more and more similarities than even people have noted in the past. So that's, that'll, that'll probably be out sometime late next year, I think. Okay. Well, how you go from tastes and smells to child abduction, I don't, I don't know, but the, it's interesting that you're going along that same path, uh, frame of thought of the coinciding, uh, similarities between multiple types of sightings. I, I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's sort of, that's sort of my thing. I mean, you know, so I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do the same thing again. So that's part of it. I'm trying to push myself to do something a little bit different, but also, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like a lot of what I do is trying to find some sort of pan paranormal explanation, because I think that even if you don't think that these all are the same thing, and I think that there are multiple different, uh, multiple different explanations for each of these things that we see. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you don't think that there are they're, they're the same thing, there are definite similarities there that have got to be linked somehow. So I think that you know maybe maybe if if we could pay a little bit more attention to that, maybe we might make some uh, make some headway. Oh, and then again, we might not. <laughs> well, <laughs> everybody in the paranormal field is hoping we are we are at that breaking point, but uh, I honestly am not sure myself. So. All right, Josh, it is about time to let you go. So I do want to give you a chance to tell everybody where they can find you, find the books, and all of that great information. Well, thanks so much. Um, you can find – I actually am blogging more now than I <laughs> I used to. I, I I don't usually keep my blog in, in, in good shape. I post once every three or four months. But I actually have two posts within a month this, right now Right now that's up there. That's over at joshuacutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N. And then from there you can find links to buy all the books if you're so inclined. Um, or if you just want to jump straight over to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, you can uh, find them over there as well. And I am also a regular contributor. Uh, to the podcast, Where Did the Road Go? And you can find that at wheretotheroadgo.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. I hope that uh, we can get you on again when you get the new book done, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. No, anytime. You know, if you ever need a last-minute fill-in or something, just let me know, okay? (laughs) Good to know. All right. right, Take care, guys. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That was Joshua Cutchin, author of The Brimstone brimstone deceit i want you guys to check that out uh we have let josh go but uh stay tuned we are not done yet we are going to be going into the paratruth post show right after this break hey this is eric and you're about to listen to the audio trailer of my short film the revealed which is now streaming worldwide check it out at ericscareback.com parachutesradio.com and YouTube. The links are provided in the description of this episode. Start from the beginning. When did it all begin? Hello? 
This has led many scholars to question whether the God that we serve is truly omnipotent, omniscient, spiritual, or simply a New Age extraterrestrial. While others are led to question, are we truly alone in the universe? So, these dreams... They're different this time around. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. What's up, Para fans? Welcome back to Para Truth Radio. My name is Eric. And I'm Justin. And I hope you enjoyed that audio trailer of my film. Please be sure to check it out. It is at ericscareback.com. You'll also find it on the Paratruth website. Of course, those links, as noted in the commercial, in the commercial, will be at the bottom of this video on YouTube, uh, in the description, also probably on Spreaker as well. So be sure to check it out, guys. Let me know what you think. Hope you guys enjoy it. Um, beside that, man, good episode. You know, we had a good guest there. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. It's a topic we don't really think about. And so definitely interesting and entertaining, I think, uh, on my end anyway. Well, um, and Josh is always a very intelligently spoken person. I, it just blows me away how intelligent he talks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so articulate. You know? yeah. he, he knows what he knows what he's saying when he says it. Right. Unlike you and I, who are just, we, we just obviously kinda... just going in circles, yeah. uh, chasing our tails. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway, so I think we're just going to stay on this topic for a little bit longer here, not too much more. But this sense, the sense of smell, you and I have come across this in the past. We've come across this on investigations. We've come across it in our own homes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, walking down the hallway wondering what the heck, where that perfume came from. Uh, probably more so on my end at my apartment than <laughs> you with your wife because obviously <laughs> – that should be where the perfume smells it should be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so interesting thing. This is a phenomenon that happens actually quite often in paranormal investigations. Uh, pretty much any type of ghost hunting show you probably have ever seen, you hear guys talking about some kind of smell that they mm-hmm. smell or girls. There's some girls in some of the shows. Um, and we also have friends who have done the same thing on investigations. Uh, people that we've been in contact with or worked with over the past, uh, who have come across the same type of thing. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we don't have a way to really debunk it easily other than asking someone else if they smell it or of course trying to trace the scent down like a bloodhound and figuring out where exactly that source is. And that is something that has been done, I think, at least by me, maybe you too, uh, where we've been able to really debunk what the scent is. Mm. However, 
there is the occasional scent that comes by and you just don't know what the heck is going on or where it's coming from. And it's really weird. Obviously it, it must be paranormal to some extent. What I'm questioning or wondering is if a human spirit, assuming humans can be ghosts, uh, isn't a physical being as a spirit. And since perfume in of itself doesn't have a soul, then how is it that this, the scent can exist in another realm? That's, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, even if it's, even if it's demons, uh, I mean, yeah, there, some people believe they're in hell. Uh, I think you and I are on the same page where we believe they're here on earth <laughs> along, along with Lucifer. Um, how they would smell like sulfur because a lot of demonic cases, you have the smell of sulfur. Now, right. if they're not physical beings, how are they manifesting that smell? Other than, like I said, coming through that barrier and that's the smell we're smelling as they come through onto our plane of existence. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, and one thing, one, way it could be done is maybe not necessarily manipulating us, but somehow making us think we smell that smell. And then in a sense, we smell that smell. Right. So, I mean, obviously there's no scientific evidence to prove that spirits are capable or, or incapable of producing a scent like that. Right. Demons included. Uh, I think they do have the power where they may be able to produce those scents as they very well have the power to manifest themselves in any shape they want. Heck, Satan has been a serpent, a snake. We've heard stories of people seeing wolves and black dogs and, you know, all kinds of different creatures out there that have all happened to be spiritual, which very well could be demonic as well. Uh, you know, one theory that I do have, and this is, this is actually playing, even though I don't believe it, this is playing along the lines of those who do believe that demons are in hell or can go to and from. If that's the case, then perhaps when they're in hell, they just happen to to uh, absorb the scent of hell, which is that sulfur smell, right. just as Joshua was telling us uh, this whole brimstone idea. And therefore, when they come to our plane of existence, we smell. It's like it's like being by a bonfire, you know, and your clothes smells like a bonfire for the next three days. And same same thing here. Uh, so that is a possibility. But again, I think demons, Satan included, are is really trying their best to stay away from hell. They know that it's built for them. It's written in the scriptures. Um, and so they're going to do their best to stay away from a place of torture, you know, as long as they can. Right. So. Well, I, one thing that I, I, I don't know how a human spirit would do it, but the reason they would do that, for example, not necessarily on an investigation, but numerous times where I think our grandfather is, is watching over me or is with me or whatever. I have the, the smell of, uh, um, black and mild, which is what he used to smoke when we were younger were black and mild. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and this is going from a different, a different, uh, um, sense. I've heard the old polka music that he used to listen to. When we were younger, even when we got mm-hmm. older, he was still listening to that polka music. Um, so I, I don't know how it, it's done, but somehow it, it's happening. I, and 
I, I'm trying to, to figure out how to, to wrap it up as to how, where I fall on this because yes, it could be paranormal, but like Josh said too, there are scents that will get into clothing, into couches, into, into different fabrics and then it just, it just, radiate that smell especially if you're doing a, an investigation in a very old location right. so i it's hard for me to to decide where what side of the, the fence to land on here right no i understand completely and you know i think i'm going to kind of teeter-totter on the fence because i think both are right i think there are some instances in which maybe a spirit can manifest some kind of scent for some reason or another but I also think much of it is really in our mind and we actually manifest it ourselves through our own thinking. Now, how many times have we heard that the mind is very powerful? And I think that alone, I don't know about you, but I mean, think about it. When, when you think of a Sour Patch kid, your mouth begins to water. You already yeah. got that sensation. You haven't even tried it. I've already yet, got it you know? just from you saying exactly. that. Exactly. You get that tingling right in the back of the jaw, <laughs> yeah. you know, under the teeth. And it's like, oh man, I think it's very, really the same thing. Um, the sense of smell is extremely important when it comes to human, uh, survival and also just in regards to your other senses. You can't taste anything without the sense of smell. Mm. Um, you know, and so it's very important. Uh, and I think smell is probably the most powerful scent that we have. It's the smell is probably the very last thing that we ever forget about someone or something. Mm. Period. We'll forget what someone looks like. We'll forget what someone sounded like. You know, we'll forget the way someone acted and things like that. But the scent of smell, when that comes around, you know exactly who that scent belonged to or what it belonged to, whether it be uh, a loved one or a, a pet or a certain type of food or a drink that you liked, things like that. So interesting stuff. Uh, very intriguing interview today. <laughs> and it was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, but I, I don't think we really have much else to go with that right now. Well, because, I mean, how much can you really get into paranormal smells? It smells, <laughs> ah, you know. <laughs> I, I I can honestly remember on one hand how many times we've smelled something during a paranormal investigation. And it's I, I joked around and said, you know, walk up to somebody and say, did you fart? Or are you wearing perfume? Why are you wearing perfume? We're on investigation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when, when you're on an investigation like that, that, that's the only way you can really, uh, in, in debunk it is find out if some, if somebody else smells like yeah. that or if somebody else has smelled it. So yeah, I'm not really sure how, how much more to go on it either. Uh, I, th- I think we've kind of hit it where we need because it's kind of hard to to fall on one side or the other of the fence on this because it it could be both it could be one or the other it could be your mind making something up altogether so right so let's go ahead and move on to another small topic here we've got some time left uh, Justin you just made known to me this this small article that you came across uh, maybe a little while back uh, about a program known as SpaceX. And this SpaceX is supposedly a program in which they want to take people on vacation 
to Mars. Yeah. Correct? I can think of so many reasons why they should not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first and foremost, I've come across a couple articles where I think there's another company as well. I'm not 100% on it. I've done a couple different headlines on it. Um, that I believe it was my last one that I just had done where they're actually going to start out on the moon. Um, Mm. or, it might have been even a Chinese. Actually, yeah, I take that back. It was a, a Chinese, uh, Russian collaboration where they're going to try and go to the moon first and then go to Mars. But SpaceX is also working on that same premise of they want to get to Mars and, and, um, start a colony, start a touristy type situation going on there. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there any indication as to what the time frame is before they start allowing or trying to get these people on vacation? Uh, the, the Russian Chinese collaboration was, I believe, 2019 for the 2019. moon. For the moon. Okay. Uh, for you Mars, know, it's a couple more years down the road. I feel like there's just so much money that has to be invested into this type of project. I mean, not only is it the companies themselves are going to shuttle people there that are spending millions upon millions of dollars per group that they take up there, but the people who want to go are going to have to spend millions and millions because not only are they paying or helping to support the trip itself, but they actually have to prepare for it, much like you would have to uh for – uh if you're to go on a Mount Everest, only probably tenfold if you're going into space. Right. Yeah. Well, and one thing that comes to my mind is there's so much stuff here that everybody has not seen yet on Earth to to go see and and visit. I I think that it's inevitable that we will somehow sometime end up in space, but Let's not rush it, guys. <laughs> We've got plenty of yeah. time. Well, you know, and I don't know if I brought this up on the show before, but I I just read an article about a month ago uh, about astronauts who have gone into space. And not even, like, to the moon or anything, but I'm just talking about the space station alone. Oh, okay. They, I mean, astronauts are, and forgive me if, I, if I'm not exact on the number here. It's been a while since I read it. But astronauts lose a high percentage of bone mass or bone density, I should mm. say, when they're up there. Their bones actually become brittle. They lose almost 50% of their muscle strength within a week or two because there's no, there's no gravity to help, you know, strengthen the tissue and things like that. The majority of astronauts who have been to the moon end up with brain cancer because of the, the radio, the radioactive rays from the sun. Mm. I mean, there's so many things that just can destroy you in outer space. I mean, people think, oh, it'd be so cool to be in space. In reality, the toll on your body, (laughs) I mean, it's almost not worth it. Yeah. You know? Um, And just look at the Fantastic Four. I mean... I think think that's a bad example, because that's... (laughs) I mean, that'd be kind of... Well... If I could come back, you know, and as a guy who could start fires and be on fire and fly, hey... Yeah, but how much of 
a blessing is that really? I think it's more of a curse if you ask me. <laughs> Especially if you can't control it. That's true. That is true. If you can't control it, then you're kind of stuck. But <laughs> it'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, I agree with you. I, I mean, like I said, it's inevitable that we will eventually end up in, in space. But uh there's just way too much factors in play that would would hinder us from having a good time if if you want to call it that and on the moon or even on Mars Mars is i believe has a much heavier gravity pull than the earth mm-hmm. does or if not much heavier it's it's enough heavier that you would see a difference if you right. vacationed there for a week right so next week, folks, uh, t- to wrap it all up for you guys, we are going to be having on a good friend of ours, Jamie Glanville. Uh, he's a local here in North Dakota. We're going to be talking about extremely haunted locations. Woo-hoo. And I had come up with this because Jamie has had an investigation team here in North Dakota. Eric and I had an investigation team in Ohio, and we've... Between the the three of us, investigated some really interesting boobs. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I As see. you're reading that and talking about it, I'm actually wearing one of the original NSPS t-shirts okay. that we had for our first investigation group. What a coincidence! <laughs> well, and uh, sadly, I I think I'd ripped through mine. So I don't even have oh, it. It's your muscles. You flex for your wife and it. <laughs> I'm the incredible hog. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we'll be having Jamie on to talk about that. So I want you guys to make sure to stay t- tuned for that. Uh, as I've been saying every week, please make sure you check out radioandpodcast.com. Great set of shows on there. Ours included as well as, uh, fringeradionetwork.com. We're part of both of those networks now, as well as paratruthradio.com, where you will find the Patreon account link to uh, donate if you so feel t- to choose to do so. And make sure you like, share, and subscribe. Write us a review. That uh, will help us way more than if you contribute any, any money. I, I mm-hmm. honestly want you guys to definitely do that over donating money because that actually helps us way more. So definitely do that. So until next week, folks, where you will find us same time, same channel. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. Peace. If you enjoyed this episode of Paratruth Radio and you would like to listen to it again or are interested in listening to any of our past episodes, then you can find them at Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, iTunes, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeartRadio, and the Fringe Radio Network. Or for a one-time fix of all of your Paratruth needs, simply drop in to ParatruthRadio.com. And of course, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for brand new updates on our show every day. Finally, we love bringing you fresh, entertaining media each and every week, but we can't do it without you. So please check out our Patreon account. Simply go to ParatruthRadio.com, click on the Patreon logo, and help us to continue bringing you the latest and greatest in paranormal research.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.